think that I'm all by myself in this fight, but they do not know the infinite size of the God who is by my side. Hey, on the fire, but my Goliath standing in the shadow of the Almighty. I ain't lying, just testifying. Man, I'm talking about a big God, big God. When trouble comes. Pressing on with hope signs, but sometimes I fall. Got through it all. I know you'll be by my side. There's no guarantee in this life. Your trouble's a matter of time, but you're in control. That's how I know everything gon' be okay. It won't always be this way.
Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cupcake Wars. Great to stand up right now. I'm Steve. I'm glad to see you. Let's give honor to the Lord. Give him all glory. Remember those walls that we call sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came and he died.
Hi, I'm Steven Donaldson. I'm an intern here at Cap City for Steve Smith. Uh, I play keys. You may have seen me up on stage Sunday morning. Uh, I'm also a bit of a technician, so Steve wanted me to make this video for Cupcake Wars because he's, you know, too busy. I'm also an amateur baker. I'm really passionate for it. I'm completely self-taught and I wanted to compete in the Cupcake Wars, but I didn't want to sway the judges since I'm part of staff here at Cap City. Uh, so I decided to submit my cupcake anonymous. Hey, somebody forgot to take this out to the dog. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's got a strong lemon to it. It's good. Really good. Oh my gosh. After first softer. I'm really good. That, that is beautiful and good. I think I know why this is anonymous. Look at it. No one wants to take credit for this. <laughs> it's awful. Oh look, its number is 666. <laughs> <laughs> Can we mark it as a zero anyway? Sure. Uh, you have to try it first. All right. So we, this is a this is a nice blend of chocolate, potato salad, barbecue sauce. I'm choosing not with the chicken nugget because it's not edible. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, sorry, I think the file got corrupted somewhere, but luckily I was there to see who the declared winner was. And it was obviously Steven Donaldson, the cookout cupcake. I mean, people said it couldn't be done. I mean, chicken, potato salad, and, and barbecue sauce. But I knew it would taste all good on a chocolate cupcake. It stole the show. And now this part where you all start clapping. Everyone celebrate, because I won the Cupcake Competition of 2023. <laughs> Steven, come up here right now. Bring that trophy. Steven. Steven, you did a wonderful job of making a video. You did a horrible job of making a cupcake. Come here. Come here. You're going you're gonna to give it to the real winner. All right. So the real winner, actually, and this is very convenient, the real winner is actually Shelly Hearn, who made... The uh, the uh, the sweet one. What was it called? Sweet sweet bouquet is beautiful and it was good. I'll tell you, it was really tough. Stephen has run off to the shadows. Did you see that? He took off. Congratulations, Shelley. And and it comes with a parking spot. And so we've got a sign made. So you're gonna have your own personalized parking spot out here somewhere. Well, I don't know where yet, but you've got your own parking spot for a year. All right. And then if you want to keep it, you have to win next year. Absolutely. There we go. Congratulations, Shelley. Very good. All right. And uh
We'll, we'll discipline Stephen up appropriately this week, I'm sure. All right. Uh, thank you guys for the summer and our staycations. Uh, this is our last one, our Cupcake Wars. We're grateful for uh, you guys participating and enjoying those. We hope that that's been good for you, uh, something kind of exciting extra each week as we come in. Uh, if we did a survey, I know that we would all say it was Bacon Sunday. That was everyone's favorite. Uh, at least that's what Doc keeps telling me. So that's, that's good. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing those again next year, I'm sure. It's a good time. We're glad that we did that. Uh, a couple things that we need to run through just real briefly and bring your attention to. Starting with this, this next Saturday, we're having a, a half-day spiritual retreat that Doc leads a couple times throughout the summer. If you want to just kind of get away for, for a few hours in the morning, if you want to have someone kind of walk you through what it looks like to spend some time meditating over Scripture and uh, interacting with God in a more personal and kind of a, a private, intimate uh, setting, uh, Doc does a phenomenal job of, of walking people through that. We always have such great uh, responses and whenever people choose to do that. So if that's something you might be interested in doing, please go to capcity.info, register for that event so that we can know to look for you and you can get all the other details of how that's going to go down and where to meet, what time, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but again, just check that out, capcity.info. Uh, today, after our service, we have our Getting Started 201. That's uh, just an opportunity to have a conversation. It's in our connections room. When you go out these doors off to your left into the foyers, our connections room, I'll be in there, and I would love to have any conversations with you. If you have questions about our church, if you have questions about uh, how you can get more connected, if you have questions about why uh, it seems like people have certain haircuts here, I mean, I don't know, whatever. Whatever questions you've got, you can bring them to me, and I will do my best to answer those, help you understand, just introduce you more to this church and what it is that we're all about. It's 201 because 101 is all about Jesus, and that's first and foremost. So just a little teaser. That's really what we're all about about. Okay, so there's that. If you got that, just again, right after service. And then uh, this Wednesday night, we're doing something special. We're calling it Next Level, where we're asking uh, all of our people to participate in a, a night where we cast a little bit of vision and we do a little bit of training. Okay, if you are involved in any of our ministry teams, if, if you're involved in these acts of service here within the church, this is an event for you. If you aren't involved in any of those kinds of things, this is also an event for you. Because really more than anything, we'd love to be able to connect with more people uh, and, and c try to fill some gaps in ministry that we have, okay? So if you've ever thought about serving in our preschool or children's or student ministries, we would love to see you Wednesday night. Uh, if you've thought about serving up front with our guest services or anything else behind the scenes, we'd love to see you Wednesday night. Uh, give you an opportunity to kind of see behind the curtain, see what we do. But again, all of that's going to be coming from vision. What it is that we're about and what, we, what we're trying to accomplish. We don't do anything here just because, uh, there's big, deep reasons and, and f vision behind how we function and the things that we do. And so we want to cast some of that, let you see what it is that we're about, and then invite you to partake in, in a place of service, all right? Uh, that's one of our core things. We're worship, connect, grow, and serve. Uh, serve is a big deal here, and we want everybody to have a place where they get to serve. So this Wednesday night, we have dinner at 530. That's provided downstairs. And then in here at 630 is when we're going to begin. We're probably going to start pushing people up here about 620 so that we can begin right at 6.30 so we have enough time for everything. But we want to encourage you, uh, invite you, ask you, plead with you, beg you to please be here uh, because it's going to be a really powerful but important night uh, for the life and the future of this church. Now, we've been going through uh, this sermon series called Trail of Grace. We've been looking at uh, these little grace notes all throughout the Old Testament, places where you wouldn't normally look or expect to see them that have been really, really powerful. And today, I'm going to introduce you to, to kind of the big idea. We're going to be talking about David, and it's going to finish out with this really powerful passage. Okay, now David is a pretty normal guy in a lot of ways. He has a lot of ups and he has a lot of downs. 
Uh, he's, he seems really kind of special, but at the same time, uh, he seems really kind of not special, <laughs> not, not anything different than anyone else. He has his own flaws and problems. And there's this psalm that he writes. It's Psalm 23. You're probably familiar with it. We don't know exactly which point in life he wrote this, but it's powerful language. And I want you to begin already letting some of these words just kind of sink into your soul as Doc lays this out for us more in depth, okay? But I want you to read this with me. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows and he leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close behind me. Your rod and your staff, they protect and they comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. And surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Steve and his team have prepared a song that is based off of these words, really powerful. I encourage you to, to, to interact with it. If you wanna stay in worship, you can. If you wanna sit and just let these words kind of sink in and meditate on them, I think it'd be really powerful. Uh, but th let these words come to life for you this morning.
to this time of communion right now, we were reminded again of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The one who has showed us what God looks like. The one who has showed us exactly how to live in this world. And it is difficult. But we know that we can lean on the one who's given us this new life. He's given us this family. He's given us new hope. He's just given us grace when we didn't deserve it. And so when we go to the tables in a few moments, I want you to focus in on that grace. The trail of grace. It leads to where you are as well. And on that path that you need to be on. So I want to be reminded again of all that was given for you so that you can have these lives that we can give back to God. When you go to the tables, you'll have bread and juice. This is a way for us to remember his body and blood. Jesus Christ died on a cross for us. If you don't know what any of that means, please come talk to us afterwards. We'd love to tell you what that's all about. If this place is your home and you want to get an offering, we have these boxes at each of the stations as well. We do this other weird thing that after your offering, after that first part, you want to give something even more, something above and beyond. That's what we have the generous buckets for there as well. So let's go to the table and focus in on his grace.
Friday night for our Jesus Prom. I can't see hands, but there are a bunch of you because we had uh, about 115 guests for our Jesus Prom. We had about, I think, 125 or 30 uh, guides plus the rest of our volunteers. A couple of hundred people were here on uh, Friday night to make that thing happen. And it's just a really, really cool event. I think it's uh, pure ministry where we're basically throwing a, a party for those that uh, sometimes are marginalized, sometimes ignored. And we get to celebrate them with us, loved by God, loved by us. So great night. Thank you um, for those who participated in that, helped out in any way. Thank you very, very much for that. By the way, one of the slides that showed the spiritual retreat coming up, the half-day spiritual retreat, I think it had Wednesday on it. That's going to be Saturday morning over at Cove Springs Park. You can find more information online or on our planning center app, our church center app. Let's pray together. Father, we're going to talk about some things this morning that are going to be really hard for us to, to believe. So I pray that you give us sharp minds and tender hearts. And now may the words of our mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts please you. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Okay, how many of you guys have uh, heard of a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer? He was an atheist, a pedophile, serial killer who murdered 17 guys between 1978 and 1991 in Wisconsin and in Ohio. One guy called him the epitome of human depravity, which means it's about as low as a man could go. I mean, even people who celebrate immorality were horrified by Jeffrey Dahmer. Came from a badly broken family. He was a loner, alcoholic, came out as gay. He battled terrible sexual fantasies until he started making them real. He would lure some young man into a sexual encounter, drug him, kill him, pose the corpse, dissect, dismember, mutilate it, eat parts of it sometimes, preserve body parts for his collection. He was an absolute monster. They finally caught him. And while he was in custody, he asked for a copy of the Bible. Apparently one Christian lady had heard him searching for some peace, and so she sent him several Bibles. And then she asked her pastor to visit him, which her pastor did very nervously. And apparently, gradually, something happened. And Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, became a Jesus follower. You buy that? He was baptized by the Church of Christ pastor in a prison whirlpool, which symbolized his sexual perversions, his pedophilia, his murder, his necrophilia, his cannibalism, all washed clean by God. No longer to be held against him by God. Do you buy that? Does it work that way? In an interview with NBC, Dahmer reflected on his previous depravity. He said, if a person doesn't think there's a God that you're accountable to, what's the point of trying to change your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. In other words, he said, if there's no God, who cares what you do? Who cares what you think is right or wrong? Why not do whatever you have an urge to do? What if there is a God? 
while in prison, one inmate trying to murder him in a prison chapel, prison church, tried to kill him with a razor blade. That guy failed. Later on, another inmate got it done. He beat Dahmer to death, saying, God told me to do it. Is that justice? So, do you think Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven? If you get to heaven, do you think there's a possibility you're going to be neighbors? One professor said, if Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to go there. You agree with him? Did you know that the good news, the good news of Dahmer's conversion was not good news for most people? Distrust, doubt, disbelief, cynicism, rage, anger. People are always skeptical about jailhouse conversions. And of all people, that monster? A whole lot of the doubters were Jesus followers. And not just because we doubted the sincerity of the depth of his conversion. A whole lot of Jesus followers doubted because sometimes God's grace is offensive to us. There are those I don't want God to forgive, right? There are times when God seems a little too generous with his grace, right? God may forgive him, but I won't, we think sometimes. Now, what's fascinating to me is how the distrust, the doubt, the cynicism of Dahmer's uh, didn't focus on anything that he said or did after his conversion. Their cynicism was all focused on who he was before professing Jesus. Can a man like that actually change? Can a man that bad actually be forgiven by God? And aren't there some sins that are so vile that forgiveness itself is evil? How could God be a good God and grace a guy like that? There have to be limits to grace don't there? As long as those limits don't exclude me and mine. But how do you know for sure if there are limits? Now, one of the resources that Ben and I are drawing on for this series is a book by Preston Sprinkle called Scandalous Grace. In fact, he's the one who led me to the Dahmer story. Here's what he says about this scandalous grace of God. He says, grace is more than just leniency and unconditional acceptance. Divine grace is God's relentless, loving pursuit of his enemies, guys who are unthankful, unworthy, unlovable. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners, but his stubborn delight in his enemies, even the creepy ones. Grace means that despite our filth, despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addictions to food, drink, sex, porn, pride, self, money, comfort, success, God desires to transform us, to transform us into the real ingredients of divine happiness. Grace is God's aggressive pursuit of, stubborn delight in, freakishly foul people. He says, since we all stand guilty in God's courtroom, whether you're a homeschooling mom or a porn star, an Awana champion or a suicide bomber, then every single one of us needs the same stuff that rearranged Dahmer's soul. You need the same grace. You buy that? You apply it personally. Now, Dahmer's story is about a freakishly foul sinner who came to Jesus. Is grace that big? What if you flip it around? How about guys like us, people who are already God 
followers who still commit freakishly foul sins. Is that worse? Are you more worried about God's forgiving the things you did before you were a Jesus follower or the sins you keep on committing since you've been a Jesus follower? The story I'm going to focus on this morning is the story of a kind of a spiritual schizophrenic, a guy like me, who on the one hand is described as a man after God's own heart. He's a serious man of God, a man of God, they said, who sinned some really, really, really big sins. Not before he trusted God, but after. It's the story of King David. Part one, David, the humble, God-honoring hero. Part two, David, the scandalously God-dishonoring sinner. In many ways, kind of like a lot of you guys. Kind of like a, a lot like me. And here's the question. The Bible didn't have to. Why does it give us part two of the story? We're going to get back to that. Now, this David was the second king of Israel. First was a guy named Saul, and as king candidates go, they looked very, very different. Here's how Saul is described. The Bible says there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, big family, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel. Kish had a son named Saul, who was as handsome as a young man could be, kind of looked like me, right? And a head taller than anyone else in Israel, kind of like Webb, right? Just looked the part. An impressive young man, in some ways without equal, turned out to be a pathetic king. David was not so impressive. He was the youngest of eight boys, apparently the least impressive of the bunch. God had tasked this prophet named Samuel the job of anointing David as king, and Samuel was really impressed with David's brothers. But God says, God doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outside. God looks at the inside. Which makes you wonder, listen, if God really does look at the heart, why did he choose David? Couldn't God have seen what David was capable of? Couldn't he see the terrible things that David was going to do? And if God knew the kind of terrible things that David was going to do, why did he choose him anyway? Why does God choose you? Why does he choose me? And yet, despite knowing David's heart, God chose him. It says, so Samuel took a horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, it says, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. From that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord was powerfully on David, it says. Hang on to that part. We're going to need it. David started well. Most of you guys have probably heard something about the story of David and Goliath, the Philistine giant. David's still a shepherd boy, armed with a sling and five rocks against Andre the giant on steroids, right? But it's not the story of the remarkable abilities of a young kid. It's about the remarkable power of a God can use a dork kid to slay a giant. Apparently, David is bringing food to his brothers who are in the army when he hears Goliath dissing the army of Israel. David is like, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And as you know, David goes out to confront Goliath. And I'm not going to focus on much of the story. I just want you to read the words that he said. They're amazing. He says to Goliath, you come to me with sword, spear, javelin. I come to you in the name of God. 
God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. And tonight that, today that God is going to conquer you. I'm going to kill you and I'm going to cut off your head. And everyone assembled here will know that God rescues his people, not with a sword and spear. This is God's battle, and he's going to give you to us. Huh. It's weird. Great words. That's what trusting God looks like, right? That's what a man after God's own heart should look like. And... David is eventually called up to serve in King Saul's court, and eventually Saul came to hate David. Have you ever hated somebody who's just a little bit smarter than you, a little bit prettier than you, a little bit holier than you? That was kind of Saul with David. Saul, I mean, David keeps on doing his best anyway, serving Saul, and eventually Saul loses it, and David becomes a fugitive. Saul's guys are out there trying to hunt him down to kill him. Even Saul the king goes out twice to hunt David down. And twice, not just once, but twice, David has the opportunity to kill this king who's trying to kill him. David is too good. man after God's own heart. A man on whom the Spirit of God had come powerfully, right? So he lets him go. Eventually Saul dies. David becomes king, and he's a good one. He's the one who conquers Jerusalem makes it the capital of Israel, expands and secures Israel's borders. He brought the ark of God to Jerusalem because he wanted to build a temple for God there. God says no. God says you're not the right man for the job. Instead, God gave David one of the most remarkable promises in the Bible, right up there with God's promise to Abraham, right up there with anything he'd ever said to Moses. It's a promise that's going to lead directly to Jesus eventually. God says... Your kid Solomon, he's the one who's going to build my temple, not you. But your house, your kingdom is going to continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. He says to David, you're going to have an eternal kingdom. One of yours is going to sit on the throne forever, which is why the Jews expected their Messiah to come from the house of David, which he did. Now, the story ended there, it'd be a great story. Beautiful story. David ushers in this period of peace and prosperity. The Bible says that David reigned over all Israel. He did what was just and right for all of his people. He's a great king. He's actually called a, a man after God's own heart. How cool is that? Didn't God know what David was about to do? Why would God bless a man with such a capacity for evil? Especially if he knew the kind of choices that this man after his own heart was about to make. That's what David's called. Why does the Bible tell us part two? Here's part two. The man who broke God's heart, it would seem. A lot later on, Jesus would say this. Jesus would say, when someone has been given much, much is going to be required in return. When someone has been entrusted with much, even more is going to be required. Okay. Well, David had been blessed with a boatload. All that a man could ask for back then. He'd been chosen by God, protected by God, blessed by God. He'd been given one of the greatest promises God ever made any man. He was without excuse. There he was. A man who loved God and a man who loves sin. 
and not just little sins. David was a man who loved a big, big God and a man who committed big, big sins. You know anyone like that? You ever been like that? Do you think the Spirit of God will still on him powerfully in part two? Now, kind of a side road. You ever read any of the stories about quiet quitting on the news? Employees who just keep going to work, drawing a paycheck, but try to do less and less and less to see how little they can do and still keep their job, right? You've probably had a couple of them near you, right? How can you keep doing littler and littler as a God follower and still expect God's grace? Or have you read about these gray divorces, people who have been married 30, 40, 50 years, and then they call it quits? Sometimes good, solid marriage, it seems. They've been a solid partner, and they just call it quits. Do you know anybody like that with God? They've been a Jesus follower 30, 40, 50 years, and then they toss it in. Ever been tempted yourself? I've known some. Breaks your heart. Did you know that you are never too old to be a target of Satan? And here's what happens. You probably know at least pieces of the story, so I don't have to give you the lurid details. David's king, man after God's own heart, the one on whom the Spirit of God had come with power. He's up on his roof one day. They did that back then, and he saw a woman taking a bath. She was naked, and she was gorgeous, because she's naked, right? And instead of looking away, David sent for her, slept with her, and impregnated her, which would have been God-dishonoring enough What's worse is that she was the wife of one of his men. So far, lust, coveting, adultery. So he tries to cover up the sin by ordering her husband back from the front because he's in the army. He wanted the husband, Uriah, to sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so they wouldn't guess who the babies was. He wouldn't do it. He wasn't about to party with his wife while his brothers are at war. So David gets him drunk, hoping the booze would make him drop his guard. It didn't. So David sent him back to the front with secret orders. Put this Uriah out front, and when the fighting gets worse, pull back and leave him hanging. In other words, kill him for me, he says. Lust, coveting, adultery, lying, inducing a good man to sin, and murder. It's an impressive list. And here's the part that blows my mind. David does not repent until he's outed. Now, it's one thing if his guilty conscience led him to confess his sin. It didn't. It took a prophet, a messenger from God, to call him out. It always makes you wonder, doesn't it, when a person doesn't say they're sorry until they're outed? Well, here's what happened. Prophet of God called Nathan calls David out. Nathan says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm the one who anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I'd have given you more. Remember what Jesus said to one whom much is given, much is expected? So why did you despise my word by doing what's evil in my eyes? God says. You struck down Uriah with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. David doesn't push back. At least he's got guts to own his own sin. 
All he says is, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. That's all it says. You're right. I sinned. And Nathan responds, okay. God has taken away your sins. He's forgiven you. And that's it. David lusts, covets, commits adultery, lies, induces a good man to sin, murders him, and says, I'm sorry, and God graces him. Is it that easy? Is that right? Is that just? Should not grace have limits? Except maybe for you and yours. Well, David had already done more than enough to disqualify himself as Israel's king. He had already given God ample justification for abrogating his promise to David. And the consequences of David's sin were hellish. Baby dies. The family implodes. David doesn't get any smarter. He keeps making bad choices. He neglects justice. Israel's enemies are emboldened. And his misbehavior was one of the sparks that culminates in a civil war. So why did they include this episode in the David story? Most of the storytellers, the historians of that time, would have left a story like this out of their great kings. And this sin wasn't the only one listed, just the tip of the iceberg. Later on, David takes a census to get a good count on his fighting men. Apparently, that was a violation of God's will. David knew it was a violation of God's will, and because of that sin, God sent a plague on Israel that killed 70,000 people, 70,000 lives because David sinned. Wow. Later on, David got old. He got cold a lot. I get that. I get cold a lot. I'm getting old. I use space heaters, jackets, heating pads to keep me warm, right? Well, they went and found David a young virgin to keep him warm. They really did. By the way, guys, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you ought to try it, right? Later on, he's on his deathbed. David actually gives a hit list to his son Solomon. These are guys that David wanted dead, but for some reason David couldn't kill. Promises he'd made, something like that. But David wanted him dead. His son wasn't bound by David's promises. I cannot imagine a deathbed hit list as God honoring. In other words... David failed a lot. It failed as a God-honoring dad. It failed as a God-honoring agent of God's justice. It failed as a man after God's own heart on whom the Holy Spirit had come with power. By every conceivable standard, David had disqualified himself from God's blessings, God's promises. If there are limits to grace, David exposed them. Don't you think? But... It never was about David's holiness. It was always about God's unfathomable grace. It always is. It is not about your achieving some standard of holiness. It's about your trusting in God's unfathomable grace. Do you get that? Now, would David be welcome here at Capital City Christian Church? Is there anybody here at Capital City Christian Church that has sinned bigger than David? Anyone here at Cap City who has out-sinned God's grace? Have you? Do you fear? Would you permit a man like David to be a leader here at Cap City, one of our elders maybe? 
How much sin is tolerable here? How about Jeffrey Dahmer's sin? Do you think he outsinned God's grace before he ever accepted Jesus as Lord and his Savior? Would you be comfortable with Dahmer sitting in front of you, next to you, behind you? I'm talking about the post-conversion Dahmer, not the pre-conversion version. Let me ask the more important question. How much sin do you suppose is tolerable to God? At what point would God wash his hands of you, of me? Dahmer was freakishly evil, but at least his sin was pre-conversion. How about David? David was amazingly blessed by God, kind of like us. Despite those blessings, he repeatedly dishonored the God that he loved, kind of like us. Do you ever fear that you have outsinned God's grace? Whether by sins that you committed before becoming a Jesus follower or by sins that you keep struggling with afterwards. What if God really is that scandalously free with his grace? If he is, why do we still insist on branding people with the stigma of their sins? Why do we still think of each other as an adulterer, a liar, a cheater, an addict, rather than looking at each other through the grace-filled eyes of our God? Why is it that we often think, and sometimes we even say blasphemies like these, God may forgive him, God may forgive her, but I never will. As if my tribunal is higher than God's. Now, when I was studying for this sermon, I love it when this happens, I ran across something I'd never seen before, which is so cool. I was reading Sprinkle's book and it caught me by surprise. In fact, I was pretty sure that Sprinkle got it wrong, so I checked it in all my own sources. It was mind-blowing. He was right. It's right there in the 23rd Psalm. Known it all my life. You're probably familiar with it. I've got the words on screen. Why don't you read it with me, okay? Are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Okay, you stop now. I want to finish this part. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me. Follow me. All the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And here's what he said that caught me by surprise. Sprinkle said that's not strong enough. Follow me is not strong enough. The Hebrew word is way stronger than that, he says. So I looked it up. And he was right. Best Hebrew dictionary I've got on my shelf translated the verb pursue or to chase. (coughs) Excuse me. It could even be translated persecute. Pulled down my big theological word book. Translated the word pursue to hotly pursue. Which means that it's more like God's goodness and God's mercy are going to pursue me. God's goodness and God's mercy are going to hunt me down. 
like a hunter pursuing his prey, like a warrior running down an enemy, like a lion on the hunt. It gives us the picture of this infinitely powerful creator God hunting you, chasing you with unbridled passion until his love devours you. (coughs) Excuse me. Do you believe that the goodness and the love of God are pursuing you right now? Hunting you down, chasing you down right here, right now. I don't care where you've been and what you've done. Do you believe that? Now I wonder when David wrote this psalm. Ben says we don't know when it was written. He's right. Did he write this early in his life before he understood how big a sinner he was going to be? Did he write this later in his life when his mind was blown by the unfathomable faithfulness of a gracious God who loved him anyway? I think it was latter. That's what it feels like. Surely your goodness and surely your unfailing love are going to pursue me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. I don't think he changed that thought later when he sinned. I believe that. Thank God. And it's because of your God's faithfulness that I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So David's like his goodness and his grace are going to hunt me down. Even though I had sex with my friend's wife, murdered him, even though I failed my God a thousand other ways, can you say that? God's goodness is going to hunt me down even though I lied, I cheated, I stole, I was immoral, I dissed those I was supposed to love, I marginalized the God I swore to serve, whatever. And it boils down to this, guys. God's grace has no limits. None. He's not like us. God's grace has no limits. Whether you sinned big before you came to Jesus or whether you've sinned repeatedly since, His grace has no limits. Can you trust that? It's what we've got. And if you can trust that, it's going to change your life. It works. New Testament opens with these words. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David. David the dork and Abraham the twit. And God's promise is still held. Because it's not about their faithfulness, it's about his. Later on in the New Testament, David is still referred to as a man after God's own heart. That's in the book of Acts. Because he still loved God, he still pursued God, he still trusted God, despite his terrible battles with sin. So let me wrap this up with the words of Andy Stanley, another one of the guys that Ben and I are leaning on for this Trail of Grace series. He says, while the details of our lives may overlap very little with David's, there's one thing we all have in common with him. We've all put God's grace to the test. We've broken his law. We've been irresponsible with his blessings. We've confessed to sin only to turn right around and repeat it, right? It's those occasions when I begin to wonder, how many times? How many times can I expect God to forgive me for the same sin? All of us in our own ways have have wondered, where does grace end and retribution begin? If David's story is any indication, grace has no end. Right? So, regardless of what you've done, 
regardless of how far you've strayed, regardless of how long it's been since you addressed God directly, regardless of what you've been told, regardless of how you feel, grace awaits you. Grace that is greater than every single bit of your sin. Do you buy that? That's God's truth, guys. And that will change your life. If you struggle to believe that, let's talk. If you've never given into that grace of God, let's talk. I'm going to sit down here for the rest of the service and right up here at the end. I'd love to chat with you. We've got an elder praying for you right now in that prayer room in the back of the room. Slip back there and talk to him. We'd love to talk to you. Over this next song, remainder of the service, give God thanks. We've got an amazing God. Let's just give him gratitude. Okay? Let's stand and sing.
Father, we're so grateful that you love us the way that you do, that you loved us so much that you'd go out of your way to give us a relationship with you, to make it all possible. It is your grace that drives us. It is your grace that sustains us. And it is your grace that we're going to hold on to in this world. Father, we pray each of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We're so glad that you chose to be here. We hope to see you again next week. Go enjoy a cupcake, okay? Okay.